All right. How's everyone doing? Today we are studying section 9, if you have the journal. So if you didn't grab a sticker before, you could grab a sticker. And I want to welcome you all to Wheaton Bible Church. And today is the first Sunday after Easter. And to make things interesting, um, the Bible is asking me to talk about three very easy uh, topics. Um, Non-controversial whatsoever. We're going to talk about marriage, divorce, and singleness. Marriage, divorce, and singleness. Anybody else nervous for me today? It's just me? Uh, So let me go straight to the point. We're going to talk about the first uh, topic here, marriage. But before we do that, I need you to look at the person next to you and say to that person, uh, this is about to get interesting. Go ahead, go ahead. All right, marriage. So Jesus is uh, hanging around with a ton of people in verses 1 and 2. A large crowd is following him. He's welcoming people and he's healing people. And among this group comes the Pharisees, which is the religious leaders of the time. And verse 3 says that they approach him to test him. So in a way, the the Pharisees or the religious leaders are trying to find something to, uh, make lo- uh, to make Jesus lose credibility before his followers. So people, so, so people may think that he's phony or that he is not who he says he is. And to do that, the Pharisees make a very interesting question that reveals a lot about their hearts. Verse 3, they asked, Is it lawful for a man to, dis- to divorce his wife for any and every reason. Don't you find that last sentence really interesting? I find that intriguing because it seems to be like if in their hearts, marriage is not as important as the Old Testament says it is, and then later on we will see that the New Testament says that it's just as important, And it's so not important for them that they are finding ways and actually they say any and every reason for people to get divorced. That that reveals a lot about their hearts. It's like me going to my father-in-law and the pastor and I bring them together and I say, before I got married, I bring my wife and my girlfriend back in those days and I say, you know, I'm so in love with your daughter. And so in love with your sheep. And so I would do anything for this woman. But before I make the final decision, can you just give me at least 10 reasons why I should divorce this lady in the future? <laughs> That's basically what they're doing. What is Heidi supposed to think about that? I'm super committed, but I'm already finding ways just in case this thing doesn't work. What is the way out? That's exactly what this group of men are doing. So the question you got to ask is, why is it that these people are asking those questions? And Jesus is about to answer that question. But before he answers that question, he's going to do something brilliant. Before he talks about the biblical justifications for divorce. Before he does that. Before he explains that there are valid reasons why people get divorced. He's first going to Elevate marriage, honor marriage, so people could see that marriage is good, 
that marriage should be pursued, that marriage should be defended, that marriage should be protected, that marriage should be cultivated, and that marriage should be cherished. Before he brings the, the, the topic of divorce, he is going to spend at least three verses explaining why divorce is the last option. Which, by the way, that's countercultural. At that time and in this time. So look at what he says in three verses, verses four, uh, five, and six. Haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female? Verse five. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. Verse six. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. And there's so many things that we could say about marriage, but I'm going to stick to the three verses I have in front of me. Because in these three verses, just in these three verses, and there's more to say, but just in these three verses, there are five foundational principles that explain why is it that marriage is good, we should pursue it, we should defend it, we should protect it, and we should cultivate it. Five principles in three verses. Ready? No, lame. Ready? Here we go. Number one, marriage is God's idea. This is not an institution that we created as human beings. He says, in the beginning, before sin entered the world, God defines what is marriage. God says what is marriage. It was God's idea and God's design, and because he is the creator of marriage, he holds the right to say what is marriage and how people ought to live their married life. You don't get to design that. I don't get to design that. The Bible says how and what marriage is and what is not. Amen? Number one, that was the easy one. Number two, marriage requires exclusivity. He says that is the union, the physical, emotion, and the spiritual union between one man and one woman. Marriage is about two people, a man and a woman, Declaring exclusivity for one another. It's not one plus another and plus another. It's just one man and one woman. And I know there's got to be at least one person in the group that says, hold on a second. If that is what the Bible talks about marriage, then why there are so many examples of polygamy in the Bible in which you have one man with multiple wives. And I want to teach you how to read the Bible and interpret the Bible. I, wanna, I want you to consider and actually do this as a spiritual exercise. Go and read every single um, relationship in which there is more than one man and one woman. Read through the Bible and find every single one of those examples. And I dare you to find one good example of, a, of, of, of polygamy that says, oh, we should do that. There is not one good example of a healthy marriage in which there's more than one man and one woman. So why would God leave that there? For us to see it. That whenever we walk away from God's original design, things go south. For us to see it. Marriage demands exclusivity. One man and one woman. Number three, 
Marriage is partnership and friendship. So God creates, he says at the beginning, God created Adam. And he calls them and he gives them this, what theologians will call the cultural mandate. He puts them to work, to cultivate, to create, to make this creation flourish, to make this creation uh, look beautiful, to display the glory of God in all spheres of life. Work, home, neighborhood, all over the place. With that in mind, and within that context, is that God then creates Eve, a helper suitable for him, a helper fit for him. That would be the ESV translation. Now, I want you to listen to this, church, because God does not create Eve because Adam was feeling lonely. You have to remember that this comes before the fall. The, the relationship between Adam and creation and Adam and God is perfect. There is no sin in the world. He does not feel lonely. That's not what he means when the Bible says that it's not good for men to be alone. There is no sin at that moment in the Bible. So what is the meaning of God creating a helper fit for him? Well, you got to look at the context. It says that there was, there, there was no other creature like him. So he creates someone that is like him, but not like him. For what purpose? For the purposes of God to, to bring a beauty into this creation to contribute to the cultural mandate. This is what the Bible says, that God created a male and a female, and he puts them together so they help one another, support one another, complement one another, so so, because they will be better together than separate. Did you know that the word helper can also be translated as strength or influence? Part of the reason why God creates Eve for Adam is for, so she can influence and give the strength that he does not have. What she has, he doesn't have. What he has, she does not have. Is this partnership and friendship for the purpose of the glory and the plans of God. Marriage is not about just two individuals that will make happy, that will make each other happy. That was not the original design. That's how modern people see it. Marriage was created. So a couple, a male and a female, work together, cultivate together, create together, reproduce, bring beauty, and make this creation flourish. They need one another. Partnership, friendship, companionship. Marriage is not an end in itself. Oh. But that's what you hear all the time. That's why people are so picky about finding a spouse. That's not even in notes. <laughs> because what we look for is someone that will fulfill my needs and my desires and my dreams. Not someone that is going to be a perfect partner, companion, and friend for the glory of God and his purposes. Don't you think that's an issue? Marriage is not just about you. It's not about me. It's not even about what we need. Marriage has a greater, bigger purpose. The glory of God and the purposes of God in this creation. Number four, marriage is a covenant. Do you notice the word united? One flesh. What God has joined together, let no one separate. It's an agreement between those two people. That we will commit to one another regardless of what we go through. 
in a covenant relationship, you say, I'm going to stick with you regardless if you stick with me. From that perspective, marriage is about present love and future love. This is part of the reason why I officiate weddings. If the couple wants to write their own uh, vows and stuff like that, I let them do some. But I always come and I say, but you got to do the biblical vows, man. You know why? Because sometimes we actually say, well, you fulfill me. That's because you're watching a movie or something, right? You complete me. And then all these feelings, you make me feel this way. You know what it is? For anyone that has been married for more than a week, you know that that's not the case all the time. <laughs> that's why the vows are so important. So I have like three or four different versions of the vows with biblical principles, and this is the one that I use the most. I, Hannibal, uh, take you, Heidi, my wife, to be my wife, to have you and to hold you from this day forward, in good times and in bad times, when we have much and when we have little, in sickness and in health, I will love you, future love. I will honor you, future love. I will protect you, understand you, respect you, and cherish you. To this, I pledge myself. Covenant. It's not a contract. Number five, marriage, whether we like it or not, is refining. Though God creates a male and a female, and he creates this helper that is suitable for Adam. The interesting thing about the word suitable is that can also be translated as opposite, meaning that both Adam and Eve are the same and different at the same time. Meaning that there's something that he has that she doesn't, and there's things that she has that he doesn't, and that this opposite thing is what creates friction within the context of marriage. How about if I tell you that it's that friction, what the Lord gave us, so we grow? This is interesting. Adam and Eve needed to be developed even before sin entered the world. God gave this couple something that will force them to grow. Now, Tim, Keller, Tim and Kathy Keller in their book on marriage, they say something that is so true. They said, marriage, by its very nature, has the power of truth. The power to show you the truth about who you are. <laughs> Don't you think that's true? I use this example before when I tell, I tell Heidi, hey, you make me angry. She, said, she could say, no, 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 I don't make you angry. You're angry because you are angry in your heart. I can't blame my wife for the things I do, I do wrong. So, for example, if you were selfish, self-centered, or egocentric before you got married, that stuff is going to come out when you get married. If before you got married you were proud and you thought that you didn't need anybody, marriage is going to bring that out. If you were harsh or impatient and not caring before marriage, marriage will bring that to the light. Marriage by nature is refining. It, it forces you to change. It demands that you die to yourself. Marriage is God's idea. Marriage is exclusive. Marriage is partnership and friendship, marriage is covenant, and marriage is refining. This is why 
as a pastor and as a Christian, and this is why as a church, we think that there's plenty of reasons why people should pursue marriage, protect marriage, fight for marriage, cultivate marriage, and cherish marriage. So you hear me saying that, and then somebody got to ask the question, okay, if that's what the Bible says about marriage, then why does the Bible talk about divorce? Well, that was kind of the questions that the religious leaders had. Look at what it says in verse 7. Why then, they asked, did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? And Jesus is going to say something that they did not expect. Actually, Jesus is going to say that divorce was never part of the equation. That this was not God's idea for God's original design. He would actually say that the reason why there is divorce and he permits certain level of divorce is because of the hardness of the heart of people. Look at what he says in verse 8. Jesus replied, Moses permitted. Stop there for a second because he doesn't say Moses demanded. There's a difference between a demand and a permission. Moses permitted, uh, permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard. But it was not this way from the beginning. A super clear it's not a commandment, it's a permission. God allowed divorce because people's hearts are hard. Now, you want me to give you the, the biblical foundations for divorce? Not yet. <laughs> because I want you to see what happens when someone embraces the meaning of marriage. I want to show you when actually people believe this thing and respond to it. And for that, I want to share with you a testimony of a Colombian couple that when we're in Colombia, they, they were married. They moved to the United States. Things got super complicated here. They got divorced. And they land in this church. And by the grace of God, they joined one of our discipleship uh, uh, programs for, for marriage, re-engage, and they went through the program and like somewhere in the middle of the program, the Lord used something to change their lives. I want you to take a look at this for a second. Era un matrimonio que a la luz de, lo, de la gente vivíamos de una forma armoniosa, pero en nuestra intimidad sabíamos que nos enfrentamos a cosas que no estaban bien. Y cuando yo tuve una conversación con mi lady, ella me dijo, no, es que no es que a ti te dé vergüenza, no es que tú no sientas falta de perdón, lo que pasa es que tú tienes orgullo en tu corazón. Cuando ella me dice que yo tengo orgullo en mi corazón, fue cuando yo digo, reacciono, no puede ser orgullo, es que yo no, es que yo, es orgullo. Es orgullo lo que yo tengo en mi corazón. Me desarmó completamente y por, él, por mi orgullo era que yo no intentaba volver a darle una oportunidad a mi esposo. Hubo un momento en el que mi lady me dijo, ¿y si es la, lo último que hagas por tu matrimonio? Capaz si sale bien. Y si no sale bien, ¿qué tienes para perder? Y dije, ok, lo voy a hacer, sí, voy a recomprometerse. Fue un momento duro porque aunque yo era el que siempre había querido, yo decía, Dios que me ayude y yo le pedí a Dios que por favor que nuestro matrimonio se, se volviera a estar unido, que el, nuestros hijos, todo, y que yo la amaba, 
y cuando fue el momento del perdón, yo quería todo, pero no quería soltar una parte que yo consideraba porque yo me creía espiritualmente superior a ella y fue algo que a ella le dolió y le quedó marcado esa confesión que yo le hice a ella y, y ella me dijo, sí, yo sabía que usted tenía ese concepto de mí. Yo le decía al pastor Carlos, pastor, pero como, o sea, yo por qué tengo que perdonar, o sea, es, es, eso tampoco, o sea, perdonar tanto, tampoco, o sea, como que yo sí quería perdonar, pero tampoco como que el perdón tenía un límite, tal vez para mí, para mi concepto. Y ese era mi egoísmo. Ese era, porque no tiene otra palabra sino egoísmo y falta de misericordia hacia alguien que Dios me dio, hacia alguien que Dios me dio para que sea mi esposa. Y era primero pues reconciliarme con Dios y entender que Él me ha perdonado, me ha perdonado un mundo de equivocaciones y de faltas. Lo que necesitaba era primero ponerme en dirección con Dios, aceptar y recibir su perdón y ahora poder eh, reconciliarme con mi esposo y, y perdonarlo. Fue un momento supremamente difícil. Se acaba el curso y me, me volteé a mirar y, y llamó así como al pastor Carlos de mi lady y le dice, si me quiero casar yo, ¿en serio? Todo el tiempo desde que le propuse y hasta hoy, así como que sí, yo quería saltar. Yo decía, Dios, gracias, qué bueno eres tú, cómo puedes hacer que algo que parecía imposible hoy en día se esté haciendo realidad. So let me go back to the question. If marriage is that good, why is it then that God permits divorce? Point number two. See, Jesus needed to elevate marriage first for us to see that there are reasons why we should protect, pursue, and defend marriage. That's where everything starts. But Jesus also recognizes that sometimes... There's difficulties in marriage, and therefore, there is permission to get divorced. I want you to understand, though, that Jesus is doing two things here. One, he is going to say that there's something profoundly negative about divorce. And two, that sometimes divorce is necessary for the sake of the person. On one end, he is not going to celebrate divorce because there's something wrong there. But at the same time, he's going to recognize that sometimes divorce is necessary. So let me talk about the first one of those. Why would Jesus not celebrate divorce and say that a divorce is something negative? Well, because of the word permitted. And because Jesus recognizes that part of the reason why people get to the point of divorce is because there has been a hardness of heart and both parties involved, or at least in one of them involved. Because of the hardness of heart. So, for example, if marriage is God's idea, the problem happens that because of the hardness of heart, we start to redefine what marriage is and why is it that we're married. When we make marriage about ourselves and about our God, His glory, and His purposes, of course, divorce is an option. See, if marriage is exclusivity between one man and one woman, 
When we allow the hardness of our heart to take over, we start to see other people as better options. Some people cultivate emotional intimacy with other person that is not the spouse. And we start protecting our marriage instead of cultivating it. Why? Because of the hardness of heart. If marriage is partnership and friendship, it is the hardness of heart that don't allow us to cultivate and protect that friendship. We make marriage, once again, about us instead of the glory of God and the purposes of God. Instead of seeing marriage as something profoundly beautiful, much bigger than us, and we make it about ourselves, that's why divorce is an option. If marriage is a covenant, a commitment between a male and a female, a commitment to love in the present and love in the future. It is the hardness of heart that, that turns a, a commitment into a conditional commitment. In which we say, I will love you as long as you love me. I will do for you as long as you do that for me. That is not a covenant. And why do we do that? Because of the hardness of heart. If marriage is, redefin- is, is refining... And we need our spouse in order to grow and die to ourselves. Because of the hardness of heart, we start to see the flaws of our our spouse as the things that she or he needs to change first before I change. And why do we do that? Because of the hardness of heart. Can you see why Jesus is saying that this is something negative? Can you see that he is not celebrating divorce? Can you see that he's confronting with the reality and why divorce happens? So I find this super interesting because contrary to what our culture says and does, our culture says you could get married, but if things don't work out, walk away. Culture says marriage is good as long as you fulfill your desires and your dreams. But if that doesn't happen, just get another person. And the Bible says... There are purposes why we should fight and protect and care for our marriages. Now, what is interesting is that when Jesus is talking here, he's talking to a traditional culture. A traditional culture that supposedly value marriage, and yet they're finding ways to, to, to get a divorce. But Jesus also talks to the modern culture because the modern culture goes to the extremes. One people will say, yeah, we believe in marriage because we need it to survive. And then they go to the stream and says, well, we don't believe in marriage. Marriage is not even necessary anymore. And Jesus says, no, it is important. I actually think that the disciples were the first modern people when they heard what marriage required. First modern people in a traditional world. You know how I know that? Because of what they said in verse 10. The disciples said to him, if the disciples, if this is the situation between a husband and a wife, it is better not to marry. Isn't that crazy? We know that most of these guys are married. Can you imagine the wife being there like, what, excuse me? (laughs) Bro, you're married. It is better not to marry. Jesus understands that it is because of the hardness of heart that divorce sometimes happens. But he's also going to say that divorce sometimes is actually necessary. It's not endorsed, but it's necessary. 
And we find actually two examples in the Bible. One we find here, and I'm going to give you the other one that Paul brings in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. The first one is the, the one that Jesus actually says in verse 9. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another woman, commits adultery. If you had an, an older uh, translation of the Bible, usually they would, they would use the word adultery. That um, divorce is accepted as if there is adultery, but that is not the right translation. Actually, this might be the best translation. The word that is used there for sexual immorality in the, in the Greek is the word porneia. It's the word that is used to talk about any sexual sin. Uh, adultery, fornication, pornography, bestiality, prostitution, homosexual practice. And what Jesus is saying is that if there is a person that is not repent, that, is, that does not have an attitude of repentance, that insists in doing the same thing, that is not walking away from sexual immorality, there is a biblical justification for someone to get divorced. The question is why? Well, the explanation is super simple. Because a person that is practicing sexual immorality is uniting him or herself uh, emotionally and spiritually with another person that is not the spouse. It's the breaking of a covenant. What I want to say, though, is that that's allowed when there's an attitude of unrepentance and when they're interested in changing. That's what would happen. Paul will give us a second argument, which is interesting because I found that not a lot of Christians talk about this argument. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 15, but if the believer leaves, the unbeliever leaves, let it be so. The brother or the sister is not bound in any such circumstance. God has called us to live in peace. Scholars there, to explain this point, talks about the sin of abandonment or separation. That is the word that is used for leaves there. It's to leave, it's to abandon or to separate and never to return. So if someone is married and one of them just walk away and never come back, there is a biblical justification for divorce. But listen up, church, because what I'm about to say, it's a little bit more controversial. And I'm willing to speak to you about that as long as you bring me a biblical verse. The word leaves there, abandonment, separation, or se uh, abandonment, separation, um, also implies when someone, in an unrepented way, that continues to exercise some sort of abusive behavior. You know why that is? Because the person that is abusive is not creating unity, is breaking the covenant of marriage. Is separating from the covenant of marriage, is divorcing from the covenant of marriage by the abuse that the person continues to exercise. Now, I want you to hear this well. As a church, we will do anything in our power to help you seek reconciliation and restoration. Divorce is the last option. But we also believe that sometimes for the sake of the person, divorce is necessary. So Jesus would say that divorce is something negative, and at the same time, Jesus would say that sometimes it's necessary. You know why I find this super interesting? Once again, Jesus is talking to a traditional culture. And Jesus is saying to a traditional culture that the tendency is to idolize marriage. In a traditional culture, people would say, you're nothing if you're not married. And Jesus would say, well, there are times 
in which marriage needs to end. It's smacking the face against the traditional culture. The traditional culture would say, well, if you're not married, you're not anybody. You are, you are defined by your marriage. Don't you find that interesting? Jesus explains. Jesus permits. But he does not endorse. He says that we ought to protect our marriage. That marriage is important. That we ought to pursue it, cultivate it, cherish it. But at the same time, he acknowledges that there are times in which divorce must happen. Now, we have been talking about all of this. Once again, in that context, in that time, and in that culture, marriage was so important that they, they cannot see anybody that is not married like a full human being, which I find that interesting because Jesus was a human being, and he was single. <laughs> so the modern culture would say that, see, that's why I'm modern. That's why I want to be single, so I could do whatever I want, and Jesus is about to fix that problem. Because your singleness is not for you. So let's go to point number three. You remember the question in verse 10? The disciples said to him, it is better not to marry. And look at how Jesus responds in verse 11. Not everyone can accept this word, but only to those whom it has been given. Stop there for a second. Because Jesus says that God does call some people to singleness. At least for a season. He calls some people to singleness. Why would I use the word uh, uh, season? Simple. Some people might be single for a while and then they get married. But everyone, and there's some people might be single until the Lord returns. But when the Lord returns, they will be finally married. So he says that this is a calling. Verse 12. For there are some eunuchs who were born that way, and there are some eunuchs who have been made eunuchs for others. But check this out. But there are others who chose to live like eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. The one who can accept this should accept it. It's a beautiful way in which he's confronting the culture of the time. He's saying to traditional people, marriage is not the only thing you have. It is possible to be a full human being, flourishing human being, even if you are single, because singleness can be a calling. There are people that choose to stay single for the purposes of God, for the kingdom of heaven. So marriage could be the best thing in the world or the worst thing in the world. And singleness could be the worst thing in the world or the best thing in the world. And Jesus is fixing this problem. And Jesus is giving the right perspective. To the traditional people, he says, don't, don't, don't talk about single people like if they're less. Don't do that. In my kingdom, there's room and a place for single people. They get to live their singleness to the fullest. They can flourish as single people. There is a purpose in their singleness, and there is a purpose for their singleness. Single people get to do some, sometimes things that married people can do. And then to the modern people, Jesus says, singleness is not just about you having freedom from the restrictions of marriage. 
Singleness is not for your pleasure. Singleness is for the kingdom of God, for you to have the flexibility and the freedom to do things for the kingdom of God that sometimes married people can't do. In one passage, in one single passage, Jesus elevates marriage and honors singleness and talks about divorce. Question. What is the one thing that the married people need in order for them to live their married life well? And what is the one thing that single people need in order for them to live their singleness well? And here's the answer. Love. See, the married person needs to experience love in order to be able to extend that love to the spouse. Amen? You can only give to others what you have. The married person needs to experience the love of God in such a way that that's what you extend to the spouse the Lord has given you. But it's the same principle for the single person. When the single person have experienced the love of God, is that that is what allows them to live and enjoy their singleness to the full potential. Love is the answer. How about if I tell you that this is the reason why we have a Savior that came as a single man to identify with single people. But it's a single God-man that was also the bridegroom that came to seek and to save those like you and me that, have, that we have divorced ourselves from him. That came to seek those of us that have intimacy with other gods and other people. That came to seek those that have been abandoned, that abandoned him looking for happiness and fulfillment in other things. That came to seek for, that came to seek for the idolatrous people. These God men, single and bridegroom, uh, bridegroom God men came not just to save, but to make a covenant. How about if I tell you that everything that was happening there in chapter 19, Jesus was talking about him and his own experience. Jesus talks about marriage because he knows what marriage is. Jesus talks about divorce because he knows what it means to be divorced. Jesus talks about a covenant because he knows what it means to be a covenant. And Jesus talks about singleness because he knows what it means to be single. So this is what Jesus says to the church. To the married, to the ones that have been divorced and find grace, to the ones that, have, to the ones that are single. This is what Jesus says to the church. I, Jesus, go to the cross to take you and faithful wife. To be my church and to make a covenant with you. To have you and to hold you from this day forward. In good times and in bad times. When you sin and when you don't sin. When you have much and when you have little. I, in sickness and in health. I will love you because of my covenant love. I will protect you. I will cherish you. To this I pledge myself and I'm never going to walk away from you. I'm holding on to you even if you're not holding on to me. I'm holding on to you regardless if you're holding on to me. And that's covenant love. If you have that, then you can live your marriage. And you can live your singleness. 
And you find grace even if you have experienced divorce. That is the answer. The covenant love of God. Do you have that? Is that how you live in your marriage? Is that how you live in your singleness? Is that what you're holding on to? Even if you got divorced. May the Lord grant us to see the covenant love of God as the thing that changes all. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. My beautiful God, we need you. We need you to help us see how much we have been loved. We need you to help us see how beautiful marriage is for those of us that are married or desire marriage. We need you to be able to live our singleness and see how fulfilling singleness could be when we see it as a calling. We need you, Lord, to, uh, we need you to help us see that even amid divorce, there's always grace. And that there is restitution and that there's transformation and there's restoration. We need you, Lord, to help us live in light of what we just saw in Matthew chapter 19. I pray, Lord, that by the power of the Spirit, we may get to see Jesus at the cross making a vow to us. The vow that says that he loves you, that he loves us in the present. And we love us into the future. Can you please help us embrace that? And we pray for all this in the name of Jesus and the church says.